Section 19 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ulysses by James Joyce. Part 2. The Odyssey. Episode 10. Wandering Rocks. Part 3. Stephen Dedalus watched through the webbed window the lapidary's fingers prove a time-dulled chain. Dust webbed the window and the show-trays. Dust darkened the toiling fingers with their vulture nails. Dust slept on dull coils of bronze and silver, lozenges of cinnabar, on rubies, leprous and wine-dark stones. Born all in the dark, wormy earth, cold specks of fire, evil, lights shining in the darkness, where fallen archangels flung the stars of their brows, muddy swine-snouts, hands, root and root, gripe and rest them. She dances in a foul gloom where the gum bums with garlic. A sailor man, rust-bearded, sips from a beaker rum and eyes her. A long and sea-fed silent rut. She dances, capers, wagging her sowish haunches in her hips, on her gross belly flapping a ruby egg. Old Russell with a smeared chamois rag burnished again his gem turned it and held it at the point of his Moses beard, grandfather ape gloating on a stolen hoard. And you who rest old images from the burial earth, the brain-sick words of sophists, Antisthenes, a lore of drugs, orient and immortal wheat standing from everlasting to everlasting. Two old women fresh from their whiff of the briny trudged through Irish town along London Bridge Road one with a sanded, tired umbrella, one with a midwife's bag, in which eleven cockles rolled. The whir of flapping leathern bands and hum of dynamos from the powerhouse urged Stephen to be on. Being less beings. Stop! Throb always without you, and the throb always within. Your heart you sing of. I between them. Where? Between two roaring worlds where they swirl. I. Shatter them, one and both, but stun myself too in the blow. Shatter me, you who can. Baud and butcher were the words. I say, not yet a while. A look around. Yes, quite true. Very large and wonderful and keeps famous time. You say right, sir. A Monday morning, twas so, indeed. Stephen went down Bedford Row, the handle of the ash clacking against his shoulder-blade. In Clohissy's window, a faded 1860 print of Heenan boxing sayers held his eye. Staring backers with square hats stood round the roped prize ring. The heavyweights in tight loincloths proposed gently each to other his bulbous fists. And they are throbbing, heroes' hearts. He turned and halted by the slanted book cart. Tuppence each, the huckster said. Four for sixpence. Tattered pages, the Irish beekeeper, life and miracles of the curé of Ars, pocket guide to Killarney. I might find here one of my pawned school prizes. Stefano Dedalo, alumno optimo, palmem ferenti. Father Conmi, having read his little hours, walked through the hamlet of Donny Carney, murmuring vespers. Binding too good, probably. What is this, eighth and ninth book of Moses? Secret of all secrets, seal of King David, thumbed pages, 
red and red, who has passed here before me? How to soften chapped hands, recipe for white wine vinegar, how to win a woman's love, for me this. Say the following talisman three times with hands folded. Say el yilo nebricada, femininum, amor, mi solo, sanctus, amen. Who wrote this? Charms and invocations of the most blessed abbot, Peter Salanka, to all true believers divulged. As good as any other abbot's charms, as mumbling Joachim's. Down, baldy noddle, or we'll wool your wool. What are you doing here, Stephen? Dilly's high shoulders and shabby dress. Shut the book quick. Don't let see. What are you doing, Stephen said. A Stuart face of none such Charles, lank locks falling at its sides. It glowed as she crouched, feeding the fire with broken boots. I told her of Paris. Late lie abed under a quilt of old overcoats, fingering a pinchbeck bracelet, Dan Kelly's tokens. Nebricada femininum. What have you there? Stephen asked. I bought it from the other cart for a penny, Dilly said, laughing nervously. Is it any good? My eyes, they say she has. Do others see me so? Quick, far, and daring. Shadow of my mind. He took the coverless book from her hand. Chardonnay's French primer. What did you buy that for, he asked. To learn French? She nodded, reddening and closing tight her lips. Show no surprise. Quite natural. Here, Stephen said. It's all right. Mind Maggie doesn't pawn it on you. I suppose all my books are gone. Some, Dilly said. We had to. She is drowning. Agenbite. Save her. Agenbite. All against us. She will drown me with her eyes. Eyes and hair. Lank coils of seaweed hair around me. My heart, my soul. Salt green death. We. Agenbite of Inwit. Inwit's Agenbite. Misery! Misery! Hello, Simon, Father Callie said. How are things? Hello, Bob, old man, Mr. Dedalus answered, stopping. They clasped hands loudly outside Reddy and daughters. Father Callie brushed his mustache often downward with a scooping hand. What's the best news? Mr. Dedalus said. Why, then, not much, Father Callie said. I'm barricaded up, Simon, with two men prowling around the house trying to effect an entrance. Jolly, Mr. Dedalus said. Who is it? Oh, Father Callie said. A certain Gombine man of our acquaintance. With a broken back, is it? Mr. Dedalus asked. The same, Simon, Father Callie answered. Reuben of that ilk. I'm just waiting for Ben Dollard. He's going to say a word to Long John to get him to take those two men off. All I want is a little time. He looked with vague hope up and down the quay, a big apple bulging in his neck. I know, Mr. Dedalus said. Poor old Bockety Ben. He's always doing a good turn for someone. Hold hard. He put on his glasses and gazed toward the metal bridge an instant. There he is, by God, he said. Arson pockets. Ben Dollard's loose blue cutaway and square hat above large slops crossed the quay in full gait from the metal bridge. He came towards them at an amble, scratching actively behind his coattails. As he came near, Mr. Dedalus greeted. Hold that fellow with the bad trousers. Hold him now, Ben Dollard said. Mr. Dedalus eyed with cold, wandering scorn various points of Ben Dollard's figure. Then, turning to Father Callie with a nod, he muttered sneeringly, That's a pretty garment, isn't it, for a summer's day? Why, God eternally curse your soul, Ben Dollard ground furiously. 
I threw out more clothes in my time than you ever saw. He stood beside them, beaming, on them first and on his roomy clothes from points of which Mr. Dedalus flicked fluff, saying, They were made for a man in his health, Ben, anyhow. Bad luck to the Jewman that made them, Ben Dollard said. Thanks be to God he's not paid yet. And how is that basso profundo, Benjamin? Father Callie asked. Cashel Boyle O'Connor Fitzmaurice Tisdall Farrell, murmuring, glass-eyed, strode past the Kildare Street Club. Ben Dollard frowned, and, making suddenly a chanter's mouth, gave forth a deep note. Ah, he said. That's the style, Mr. Dedalus said, nodding to its drone. What about that, Ben Dollard said. Not too dusty, what? He turned to both. That'll do, Father Callie said, nodding also. The Reverend Hugh C. Love walked from the old chapter house of St. Mary's Abbey past James and Charles Kennedy's rectifiers, attended by Geraldine's tall and personable, towards the Thosal beyond the ford of hurdles. Ben Dollard, with a heavy list towards the shop fronts, led them forward, his joyful fingers in the air. Come along with me to the sub-sheriff's office, he said. I want to show you the new beauty Rock has for a bailiff. He's a cross between Labangula and Lynchishon. He's well worth seeing, mind you. Come along. I saw John Henry Menton casually on the bodega just now, and it will cost me a fall if I don't. Wait a while. We're on the right lay, Bob, believe you me. For a few days, tell him, Father Callie said anxiously. Ben Dollard halted and stared, his loud orifice open, a dangling button of his coat wagging bright-backed from its thread as he wiped away the heavy shrams that clogged his eyes to hear aright. What few days, he boomed. Hasn't your landlord distrained for rent? He has, Father Callie said. Then our friend's writ is not worth the paper it's printed on, Ben Dollard said. The landlord has the prior claim. I gave him all the particulars. 29 Windsor Avenue. Love is the name? That's right, Father Callie said. The Reverend Mr. Love. He's a minister in the country somewhere. But are you sure of that? You can tell Barabbas from me, Ben Dollard said, that he can put that writ where Jacko put the nuts. He led Father Callie boldly forward, linked to his bulk. Filberts, I believe they were, Mr. Dedalus said, as he dropped his glasses on his coat front, following them. The youngster will be all right, Martin Cunningham said, as they passed out of the castle yard gate. The policeman touched his forehead. God bless you, Martin Cunningham said, cheerily. He signed to the waiting Jarvie, who chucked at the reins, and set on towards Lord Edward Street. Bronze by gold, Miss Kennedy's head by Miss Deuce's head, appeared above the cross-blinds of the Ormond Hotel. Yes, Martin Cunningham said, fingering his beard. I wrote to Father Conmee and laid the whole case before him. You could try our friend, Mr. Power suggested backward. Boyd? Martin Cunningham said shortly. Touch me not. John Wise Nolan, lagging behind, reading the list, came after them quickly down Cork Hill. On the steps of the city hall, Councillor Nanetti, descending, hailed Alderman Cowley and Councillor Abraham Lyon, ascending. The castle car wheeled empty into Upper Exchange Street. Look here, Martin, John Wise Nolan said, overtaking them at the mail office. I see Bloom put his name down for five shillings. Quite right, Martin Cunningham said, taking the list, and put down the five shillings, too. Without a second word, either, Mr. Power said. Strange but true, Martin Cunningham added. John Wise Nolan opened wide eyes. I'll say there is much kindness in the Jew, he quoted elegantly. They went down Parliament Street.
There's Jimmy Henry, Mr. Power said, just heading for Cavanaugh's. Righto, Martin Cunningham said. Here goes. Outside La Maison Claire, Blazes Boylan waylaid Jack Mooney's brother-in-law, humpy, tight, making for the liberties. John Wise Nolan fell back with Mr. Power, while Martin Cunningham took the elbow of a dapper little man in a shower of hail suit, who walked uncertainly, with hasty steps, past Mickey Anderson's watches. The assistant town clerk's corns are giving him some trouble, John Wise Nolan told Mr. Power. They followed round the corner, towards James Cavanaugh's wine-rooms. The empty castle car fronted them at rest in Essex Gate. Martin Cunningham, speaking always, showed often the list at which Jimmy Henry did not glance. And long John Fanning is here, too, John Wise Nolan said, as large as life. The tall form of long John Fanning filled the doorway where he stood. Good day, Mr. Subsheriff, Martin Cunningham said, as all halted and greeted. Long John Fanning made no way for them. He removed his large Henry Clay decisively, and his large fierce eyes scowled intelligently over all their faces. Are the conscript fathers pursuing their peaceful deliberations, he said with rich, acrid utterance to the assistant town clerk. Hell open to Christians they were having, Jimmy Henry said pettishly, about their damned Irish language. Where was the marshal, he wanted to know, to keep order in the council chamber? And old Barlow the mace-bearer, laid up with asthma, no mace on the table, nothing in order, no quorum even, and Hutchinson, the Lord Mayor, in Lendundno, and little Lork and Sherlock doing locum tenens for him, damned Irish language, language of our forefathers. Long John Fanning blew a plume of smoke from his lips. Martin Cunningham spoke by turns, twirling the peak of his beard, to the assistant town clerk and the sub-sheriff, while John Wise Nolan held his peace. What dignum was that? Long John Fanning asked. Jimmy Henry made a grimace and lifted his left foot. Oh, my corns, he said plaintively. Come upstairs, for goodness sake, till I sit down somewhere. Oof! Ooh! Mind! Testily he made room for himself beside Long John Fanning's flank and passed in and up the stairs. Come on up, Martin Cunningham said to the sub-sheriff. I don't think you knew him, or perhaps you did, though. With John Wise Nolan, Mr. Power followed them in. Decent little soul he was, Mr. Power said to the stalwart back of Long John Fanning, ascending toward Long John Fanning in the mirror. Rather low-sized, dignum of mentor's office that was, Martin Cunningham said. Long John Fanning could not remember him. Clatter of horse-hoofs sounded from the air. What's that, Martin Cunningham said. All turned where they stood. John Wise Nolan came down again. From the cool shadow of the doorway, he saw the horses pass Parliament Street, harness and glossy pasterns in sunlight shimmering. Gaily they went past before his cool, unfriendly eyes, not quickly. In saddles of the leaders, leaping leaders, rode outriders. What was it? Martin Cunningham asked as they went up on the staircase. The Lord Lieutenant General and General Governor of Ireland, John Wise Nolan answered from the stairfoot. As they trod across the thick carpet, Buck Mulligan whispered behind his Panama to Haynes, Parnell's brother, there in the corner. They chose a small table near the window. Opposite a long-faced man whose beard and gaze hung intently down on a chessboard. Is that he? Haynes asked, twisting round in his seat. Yes, Mulligan said. That's John Howard, his brother, our city marshal. 
John Howard Parnell translated a white bishop quietly, and his gray claw went up again to his forehead, whereat it rested. An instant later, under its screen, his eyes looked quickly, ghost-bright, at his foe, and fell once more upon a working corner. "'I'll take a melange,' Haynes said to the waitress. Two melanges, Buck Mulligan said, "'and bring us some scones and butter and some cakes as well.' When she had gone, he said, laughing, "'We call it DBC because they have damn bad cakes. "'Oh, but you missed Daedalus on Hamlet.' Haynes opened his new-bought book. "'I'm sorry,' he said. "'Shakespeare is the happy hunting-ground of all minds that have lost their balance.' The one-legged sailor growled at the area of 14 Nelson Street. "'England expects!' Buck Mulligan's primrose waistcoat shook gaily to his laughter. "'You should see him,' he said, when his body loses its balance. "'Wandering Angus, I call him.' "'I am sure he has an idée fixe,' Haynes said, pinching his chin thoughtfully with thumb and forefinger. "'Now I am speculating what it would be likely to be. Such persons always have.' Buck Mulligan bent across the table gravely. "'They drove his wits astray,' he said, "'by visions of hell.' He will never capture the attic note, the note of Swinburne, of all poets, the white death and the ruddy birth. That is his tragedy. He can never be a poet. The joy of creation? Eternal punishment, Haynes said, nodding curtly. I see. I tackled him this morning on belief. There was something on his mind, I saw. It's rather interesting because Professor Pokorny of Vienna makes an interesting point out of that. Buck Mulligan's watchful eyes saw the waitress come. He helped her to unload her tray. "'He can find no trace of hell in ancient Irish myth,' Haynes said, amid the cheerful cups. "'The moral idea seems lacking, the sense of destiny, of retribution. Rather strange he should have just that fixed idea. Does he write anything for your movement?' He sank two lumps of sugar deftly longwise through the whipped cream. Buck Mulligan slit a steaming scone in two and plastered butter over its smoking pith. He bit off a soft piece hungrily. Ten years,' he said, chewing and laughing. "'He is going to write something in ten years.' "'Seems a long way off,' Haynes said, thoughtfully lifting his spoon. "'Still, I shouldn't wonder if he did, after all.' He tasted a spoonful from the creamy cone of his cup. "'This is real Irish cream, I take it,' he said with forbearance. "'I don't want to be imposed on.' Elijah, skiff, light, crumpled throwaway, sailed eastward by flanks of ships and trawlers, amid an archipelago of corks, beyond New Wapping Street, past Benson's Ferry, and by the three-masted schooner, Rose Vian from Bridgewater with bricks. Almadano Artifoni walked past Hollis Street, past Sewell's Yard. Behind him, Cashel, Boyle, O'Connor, Fitzmaurice, Tisdall, Farrell, with stick-umbrella dust-coat dangling, shunned the lamp before Mr. Law Smith's house, and, crossing, walked along Marion Square. Distantly behind him, a blind stripling tapped his way by the wall of College Park. Cashel, Boyle, O'Connor, Fitzmaurice, Tisdall, Farrell walked as far as Mr. Lewis Werner's cheerful windows, then turned and strode back along Marion Square, his stick-umbrella dust-coat dangling. At the corner of Wilde's house he halted, frowned at Elijah's name announced on the Metropolitan Hall, frowned at the distant pleasance of Duke's Lawn. His eyeglass flashed frowning in the sun. With rat's teeth bared, he muttered, Coactus volui. He strode on for Clare Street, grinding his fierce word. 
as he strode past Mr. Bloom's dental windows, the sway of his dust coat brushed rudely from its angle a slender tapping cane and swept onwards, having buffeted a thewless body. The blind stripling turned his sickly face after the striding form. "'God's curse on you,' he said sourly, "'whoever you are. You're blonder nor I am, you bitches bastard!' Opposite Ruggy O'Donohoe's, Master Patrick Aloysius Dignam, pawing the pound and a half of Mangan's late Fahrenbach's pork steaks he had been sent for, went along warm Wicklow Street, dawdling. It was too blooming dull sitting in the parlor with Mrs. Storr and Mrs. Quigley and Mrs. McDowell and the blind down, and they all at their sniffles and sipping sups of the superior tawny sherry Uncle Barney brought from Tunney's, and they eating crumbs of the cottage fruit cake, jawing the whole blooming time and sighing. After Wicklow Lane, the window of Madame Doyle, court-dress milliner, stopped him. He stood looking in at the two puckers, stripped to their pelts, and putting up their props. From the side mirrors, two mourning masters dignum gaped silently. Myler Keogh, Dublin's pet lamb, will meet Sergeant Major Bennett, the portobello bruiser, for a purse of fifty sovereigns. Gob, that'd be a good pucking match to see. Myler Keogh, that's the chap sparring out to him with the green sash. Two-bar entrance, soldier's half-price. I could easy do a bunk on Ma. Master Dignam on his left turned as he turned. That's me in mourning. When is it? May the 22nd. Sure, the bloomin' thing is all over. He turned to the right, and on his right Master Dignam turned, his cap awry, his collar sticking up. Buttoning it down, his chin lifted, he saw the image of Marie Kendall, charming soubrette, beside the two puckers. One of them motes that do be in the packets of fags store smokes that his old fellow welted hell out of him for one time he found out. Master Dignam got his collar down and dawdled on. The best pucker going for strength was Fitzsimons. One puck in the wind from that fellow would knock you into the middle of next week, man. But the best pucker for science was Jem Corbett, before Fitzsimons knocked the stuffings out of him, dodging and all. In Grafton Street, Master Dignam saw a red flower in a toff's mouth and a swell pair of kicks on him, and he listening to what the drunk was telling him and grinning all the time. No Sandy Mount tram. Master Dignam walked along Nassau Street, shifting the pork steaks to his other hand. His collar sprang up again, and he tugged it down. The bloomin' stud was too small for the buttonhole of the shirt, blooming into it. He met schoolboys with satchels. I'm not going tomorrow either. Stay away till Monday. He met other schoolboys. Do they notice I'm in mourning? Uncle Barney said he'd get it into the paper tonight. Then they'll all see it in the paper and read my name printed, and Pa's name. His face got all gray instead of being red like it was, and there was a fly walking over it up to his eye. The scrunch that was when they were screwing the screws into the coffin, and the bumps when they were bringing it downstairs. Pa was inside it, and Ma crying in the parlor, and Uncle Barney telling the men how to get it round the bend. A big coffin it was, and high and heavy-looking. How was that? The last night Pa was boozed, he was standing on the landing there, bawling out for his boots to go out to Tunney's for to booze more, and he looked buddy and short in his shirt. Never see him again. Death, that is. Pa's dead. My father is dead. He told me to be a good son to Ma. I couldn't hear the other things he said, but I saw his tongue and his teeth trying to say it better. Poor Pa. That was Mr. Dignam, my father. I hope he's in purgatory now because he went to confession to Father Conroy on Saturday night. 
William Humble, Earl of Dudley, and Lady Dudley, accompanied by Lieutenant Colonel Heseltine, drove out after luncheon from the Viceregal Lodge. In the following carriage were the Honorable Mrs. Paget, Miss de Courcy, and the Honorable Gerald Ward, A.D.C., in attendance. The cavalcade passed out by the lower gate of Phoenix Park, saluted by obsequious policemen, and proceeded past Kingsbridge along the northern quays. The Viceroy was most cordially greeted on his way through the metropolis. At Bloody Bridge, Mr. Thomas Kernan, beyond the river, greeted him vainly from afar. Between Queen's and Whitworth Bridges, Lord Dudley's viceregal carriages passed and were unsaluted by Mr. Dudley White, B.L., M.A., who stood on Aaron Quay outside Mrs. M.E. White's, the pawnbroker's, at the corner of Aaron Street West, stroking his nose with his forefinger, undecided whether he should arrive at Fibsborough more quickly by a triple change of tram, or by hailing a car, or on foot through Smithfield, Constitution Hill, and Broadstone Terminus. In the porch of four courts, Richie Goulding, with the cost bag of Goulding, Collis, and Ward, saw him with surprise. Past Richmond Bridge, at the doorstep of the office of Reuben J. Dodd, solicitor, agent for the Patriotic Insurance Company, an elderly female, about to enter, changed her plan, and retracing her steps by King's windows, smiled credulously on the representative of His Majesty. From its sluice in Wood Quay Wall, under Tom Devon's office, Poodle River hung out in a fealty, a tongue of liquid sewage. Above the cross-blind of the Ormond Hotel, gold by bronze, Miss Kennedy's head by Miss Deuce's head, watched and admired. On Ormond Quay, Mr. Simon Dedalus, steering his way from the greenhouse for the sub-sheriff's office, stood still in mid-street and brought his hat low. His Excellency graciously returned Mr. Dedalus' greeting. From Cahill's corner, the Reverend Hugh C. Love, M.A., made obeisance unperceived, mindful of Lord's deputies, whose hands benignant had held of your rich advowsons. On Grattan Bridge, Lenahan and McCoy, taking leave of each other, watched the carriages go by. Passing by Roger Green's office and Dollard's big red printing house, Gertie McDowell, carrying the Catesby's cork lino letters for her father who was laid up, knew by the style it was the Lord and Lady Lieutenant, but she couldn't see what Her Excellency had on, because the tram and Spring's big yellow furniture van had to stop in front of her on account of its being the Lord Lieutenant. Beyond Lundy Foots, from the shaded door of Cavanaugh's wine-rooms, John Wise Nolan smiled with unseen coldness toward the Lord Lieutenant General and General Governor of Ireland. The Right Honorable William Humble, Earl of Dudley, GCVO, passed Mickey Anderson's all-times ticking watches and Henry and James's wax, smart-suited, fresh-cheeked models, the gentleman Henry, Dernier Cree James. Over against Dame Gate, Tom Rockford and Nosy Flynn watched the approach of the cavalcade. Tom Rockford, seeing the eyes of Lady Dudley fixed on him, took his thumbs quickly out of the pockets of his claret waistcoat and doffed his cap to her. A charming soubrette, great Marie Kendall, with dauby cheeks and lifted skirt, smiled daubily from her poster upon William Humble, Earl of Dudley, and upon Lieutenant Colonel H. G. Heseltine, and also upon the Honorable Gerald Ward, A.D.C. From the window of the D.B.C., Buck Mulligan gaily and Hines gravely 
gazed down on the viceregal equipage over the shoulders of eager guests, whose mass of forms darkened the chessboard, whereon John Howard Parnell looked intently. In Founds Street, Dilly Dedalus, straining her sight upward from Chardonnay's first French primer, saw sunshades spanned and wheel-spokes spinning in the glare. John Henry Menton, filling the doorway of commercial buildings, stared from wine-big oyster eyes, holding a fat gold hunter watch, not looked at in his fat left hand, not feeling it. Where the foreleg of King Billy's horse pawed the air, Mrs. Breen plucked her hastening husband back from under the hoofs of the outriders. She shouted in his ear the tidings. Understanding, he shifted his tomes to his left breast and saluted the second carriage. The Honorable Gerald Ward, A.D.C., agreeably surprised, made haste to reply. At Ponsonby's corner, a jaded white flagon H halted, and four tall-hatted white flagons halted behind him, E-L-Y-S, while outriders pranced past, and carriages. Opposite Pigot's music ware rooms, Mr. Dennis J. McGinney, professor of dancing, etc., gaily appareled, gravely walked, outpassed by a viceroy, and unobserved. By the provost's wall came jauntily Blazes Boylan, stepping in tan shoes and socks, with sky-blue clocks, to the refrain of My Girl's a Yorkshire Girl. Blazes Boylan presented to the leaders sky-blue frontlets, and high action a sky-blue tie, a wide-brimmed straw hat at a rakish angle, and a suit of indigo serge. His hands in his jacket pockets forgot to salute, but he offered to the three ladies the bold admiration of his eyes and the red flower between his lips. As they drove along Nassau Street, His Excellency drew the attention of his bowing consort to the program of music which was being discoursed in College Park. Unseen brazen highland laddies blared and drum-thumped after the cortege. But though she's a factory lass, and wears no fancy clothes, baraboom, yet I have a sort of Yorkshire relish for my little Yorkshire rose, baraboom. Thither of the wall, the quarter-mile, flat handicappers, M.C. Green, H. Shrift, T.M. Patey, C. Scaife, J.B. Jeffs, G.N. Morphy, F. Stevenson, C. Adderley, and W.C. Huggard started in pursuit. Striding past Finn's Hotel, Cashel Boyle O'Connor, Fitzmaurice Tisdall Farrell, stared through a fierce eyeglass across the carriages at the head of Mr. M.E. Solomons in the window of the Austro-Hungarian Vice-Consulate. Deep in Leinster Street by Trinity's postern, a loyal kingsman, hornblower, touched his tally-ho cap. As the glossy horses pranced by Marion Square, Master Patrick Aloysius Dignam, waiting, saw salutes being given to the gent with the topper, and raised also his new black cap with fingers greased by pork-steak paper. His collar, too, sprang up. The viceroy, on his way to inaugurate the Miris Bazaar in aid of funds for Mercer's Hospital, drove with his following towards Lower Mount Street. He passed a blind stripling opposite Broadbent's. In Lower Mount Street, a pedestrian in a brown Macintosh, eating dry bread, passed swiftly and unscathed across the Viceroy's path. At the Royal Canal Bridge, from his hoarding, Mr. Eugene Stratton, his blub lips a grin, bade all comers welcome to Pembroke Township. At Haddington Road corner, two sanded women halted themselves, an umbrella and a bag in which eleven cockles rolled, to view with wonder the Lord Mayor and Lady Mayoress without his golden chain.
on Northumberland and Lansdowne roads, His Excellency acknowledged punctually salutes from rare male walkers, the salute of two small schoolboys at the garden gate of the house said to have been admired by the late Queen when visiting the Irish capital with her husband, the Prince Consort, in 1849, and the salute of Almidano Artifoni's sturdy trousers swallowed by a closing door. End of section 19. Read by Richard Wallace, Liberty, Missouri, September 9th, 2010.